Thank you so much, Reuben, for leading us in worship this morning. I called Reuben pretty last minute last night and asked him to cover our worship. We have several of our band members who have tested positive for COVID, and we have some of our staff and some of our church family that are home with COVID, some um, with uh, mild symptoms, some more serious, some hospitalized. And so um, here we are almost two years later and we're still battling this pandemic. Um, and so uh, we had a decision to make as, as pastoral team and uh, as, as a spread has been happening among our members and staff to uh, either go completely virtual today or to do something kind of uh, more moderate. And so we, we've not, uh, we've canceled all our group in-person meetings, so there, there are no children or student or grow groups meeting today, or at least not officially. <laughs> um, and so we are here, and, and I, we, we thank you for being here. Thank you for wearing a mask, for keeping social distance, and taking care of each other. We, we love you, and we care about you, and we especially care about those who are vulnerable, the elderly, those with underlying conditions, and children. Uh, we care a lot about them. My grandson moved to the valley this week, and I don't want him to be welcomed by COVID. So uh, we, we want to be very careful. Uh, and so would you take a moment with me to pray for those who are sick and for this whole situation? Father, we, uh, we come to you. We thank you that um, this is our story and our song, that you are our Savior, and you are our blessed assurance, regardless of what happens. And today we come because some of ours, our staff and our worship band and our members uh, are sick with COVID. We pray for your healing hand to be on them, for them to recover soon. We pray that you protect those of us that are gathering here today, that, that you would send protection around us uh, from this virus. We pray that you would protect the elderly in our community, the children, those with underlying conditions, that you come for those who have had losses recently to COVID, uh, that you would bring those in the hospital home, and God, that you would end this pandemic. We don't understand why it's lasted so long, uh, but we pray that you would intervene, that you would use whatever means, whether it's through science, whether it's through uh, government leaders, whether it's to doctors or nurses or measures or supernatural means that you would end this pandemic and in the meantime that you would draw us closer to you, that you would help us to sense your presence, uh, whether we're sick, whether we're working at a hospital, whether we're ministering to those that are needy, that we would know you're with us. It is our prayer now as we open up the scriptures and we want to hear from you, God. May your Holy Spirit speak to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, there, a, a new word was introduced into the English vocabulary, and it's the word exvangelical. Uh, it's kind of started as a hashtag on social media, particularly on Twitter. And it had to do with people who had either grown up in the evangelical church or maybe converted to the evangelical faith and then decided to leave. 
initially it had to do with politics. There was uh, this political landscape that really was pitting people in church against each other for their political views. And some people felt like, man, you're more committed to a particular party or to a particular candidate than you are to each other, than you are to the gospel. If that's what evangelicals are, I'm leaving. And so they began to uh, start this movement. And, and then it, it involved other uh, social issues such as race uh, or gender issues or perhaps ministry issues about women in ministry. Those kind of controversies came to the forefront and people began to exit the evangelical church. It didn't help that during these couple of years, we've had some scandals. We've had some celebrity pastors and teachers who have committed horrible sins, who have fallen into immorality, who have abused their power, and it has breaking the hearts of many who looked up to them, who admired them, and it has caused many to continue to leave the church. And then we get this pandemic to just top it off. And those that hadn't left yet but were thinking about leaving, maybe that was the opportunity for them to just take that final step. Some have intentionally left the church. Some have found the pandemic to be an easy off-ramp. And many are asking questions about the validity of the church. And in a positive way, I feel like the pandemic has helped us to rediscover the fact that the church is not a place, that the church is not an event we attend, but it's a people, it's a community. It, it, it is belonging to, to Christ and to one another that makes us the church. And so whether we're in person or online, we, we are the church in a negative way. For some, the pandemic has sort of been a slippery slope and maybe they started watching online and on a weekly basis, maybe then they stopped watching. Maybe now they're fully disconnected and there are no plans to re-engage. And so it brings questions to the front. Is the church relevant for today? Do we need the church? Is it possible for, for a believer, for a healthy disciple to continue to grow outside of a community of faith? We, we know and we've said that the church doesn't save you, but can a healthy disciple grow in his or her relationship with Christ outside of the church? Does the evangelical church need a deconstruction? Do we need to sort out what, what the gospel really is in, in contrast with all of these political and social issues that divide us? Why engage the church? So we're gonna be exploring these questions during the month, the rest of the month of January in a, in a series we're calling Re-Engaging. And today I'm addressing that last question I asked. Why engage the church? And I'd like to invite you to go with me to our text for today, which is found in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 18 and 19. 16, 18, and 19. Yeah, if you find it there, uh, follow the reading as I read out loud. And Jesus is speaking. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth 
will be loosed in heaven. This is a conversation that Simon Peter is having with Jesus. They've affirmed each other's identity and then Jesus shares his intention to build his church. So whatever your experience might be with church, I hope that you would have further clarity as we look at the scriptures today of what Jesus intends it to be. We need to distinguish between the true church that the New Testament talks about it and cheap imitations or between what the church is supposed to become and what is struggling sometimes to be. If we take the words of Jesus seriously here in the scriptures, then we must be aware that we don't think too much of the church so that we don't make it an idol. And we must be careful that we don't make too little of the church so that we commit sacrilege. In fact, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's really what we're doing. If there are some things that need to be addressed, if there are some things that churches have done wrong and, and those certainly need to be addressed, let's make sure that we don't address the wrong actions of some people or some local churches and throw out the whole baby with the bathwater. So let me mention a couple of things from our text. The first one is that the church belongs to Christ. Who invented the church? Some people say that it's a man-made institution. In this conversation that Jesus is having with Simon Peter, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. The church is Jesus' idea. He built it and he claims it, my church. It belongs to Jesus. On another occasion, Paul is addressing the elders of the church in Ephesus and he's telling them to take good care of the church because Christ paid a price for it, Acts 20, 28. He says to the elders, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church belongs to Christ. He bought it. He built it, he paid for it, it belongs to him. The, the true church was not a man-made invention. The true church belongs to him. Now it is clear that when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's not establishing a denomination. It, it wasn't the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church or, or the Protestant Church. It, it, it wasn't the Methodists or the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals or the Lutherans or the Episcopalians. Jesus here is establishing what the Greek word for church is, the ecclesia. Ecclesia means the called out ones. It was used in the Old Testament to refer to the people of God. It was the assembly of those who God had called out from other nations to be his people, to be his community, his congregation. The church is the community of God. This statement is in response to a confession of Peter. Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people think that I am? And they said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist and others think you're Elijah and others think that you're a prophet. And Jesus says, well, who do you think I am? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what others think. What really matters is what you think. Who do you say that I am? And Simon responds in verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. He identifies Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed one, God's promised one. And the Messiah was expected to have a messianic community. 
When the Messiah would come, those that believed in him, those that followed him would become his community. The ecclesia of Christ consists of all those who have been redeemed by God. It consists of those who relate to Jesus in faith and spirit, no longer of flesh or nationality. You're not born into it. You, you don't get citizenship like, like you would in a nation. You believe and you become. At the end of the ages, John sees a vision of, of how the whole redemption story culminates. And, and he sees these elders that form a choir. And look what, what he says in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. He says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is the ecclesia of God. It is those that God has bought from every nation and from every tribe he's redeemed from every age that he has save them. It is a spiritual and a universal mystery, the church. It has also a local and visible expression. It is spiritual. It is invisible. It is larger than we imagine. It, it is all the redeem of all the ages of all the nations. But we can also see each other when we gather. We are a visible local expression of the ecclesia. And we are mindful that not every church that calls itself a church is a church. Not every religious institution is a true church of the Lord. But in every local body, in every denomination, in every home or place where there's a gathering of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, there is an expression of the ecclesia that Jesus was talking about. So when we disagree with a particular church or denomination, let's make sure we don't dismiss the entire ecclesia. When, when, because it belongs to Christ, when we're disappointed with what a leader has done or the way that a church has gone by the wayside and they've lost their way, a local church, let's make sure that, that we don't dismiss the entire ecclesia, the church that Jesus established, was conceived by him, built by him, bought by him. He loves his church and it belongs to him. Secondly, we see here that the church is built on disciples. Some people might say, well, if the church belongs to Jesus, is it a divine thing or is it a human thing? Is it supposed to be perfect? Reminds me of the couple that uh, came to the pastor and said, pastor, we're leaving this church. And they gave him a list of the things that they were unhappy about. And, uh, and he said, okay, well, where are you going to go? Where are you going to join? And they said, well, it, we're going to take our time until we find the perfect church. And the pastor said, okay, well, when you join, it won't be anymore. That's the truth, right? The church can't be perfect because we're a part of it and we're not perfect. This Matthew 16, 18 has been controversial. It's been the, the source of debate among Roman Catholics and Protestants for a long time. Roman Catholics have, have used this verse to say that when Jesus says, 
you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, that he's indeed establishing Peter as the first bishop of Rome, the first pope, if you would, and, and that only those who succeed uh, Peter in that are, are the true bishops and therefore the true church. And in reaction, Protestants have said, no, that's not what it means. Uh, Peter in Greek is Petros, which might mean a small rock. And, and when he says on this rock, it's Petra in Greek, which is a, a, a larger rock. So Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you're a chip of the rock. And upon this rock, and Jesus pointing to himself, I will build my church. That's been the traditional Protestant interpretation. Well, if we are honest, there is really not enough evidence for either the traditional Roman Catholic or traditional Protestant interpretation here. Perhaps both sides in the midst of trying to proof text or overreact to a proof texting have missed the point. You see, as we have mentioned earlier here, the statement of Jesus is in response to a statement by Simon Peter. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Peter declares the divinity of Jesus. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus declares the humanity of Peter. You are Simon, the son of Jonah. And there was nobody more human than Simon. When, when Jesus says to him, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, he's declaring his plan for Peter. Peter did not start out being a, a rock. He was impulsive. He was not reliable. He would change his mind. In this very chapter, if you read, there's an occasion in which Peter says something to Jesus and Jesus tells him, just like he told him, blessed are you, there's another occasion where Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter was not a rock when he started. Maybe there's a little bit of irony there. You are rocky. You're rocky. You're Peter. I'm not choosing you because of who you are right now. You are going to deny me three times. At the moment where I need you the most, you will disown me. There's an occasion later in which uh, Paul confronts Peter and because he's been hypocritical in his behavior. So much for infa infallibility. Jesus doesn't choose Peter because he's a rock. He chooses him because he's gonna make him into a solid rock. There will be one day when Peter will stand up on the day of Pentecost with the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives him. And he will proclaim the gospel in 3,000 people will confess Jesus as Lord. There will be a moment when Peter will become a leader among the apostles, when, when he will make a difference and open up the doors of the church to the Gentiles. There will be a moment when Peter, according to tradition, will die for his faith in Jesus. He will become a martyr. The rock upon which Jesus would build his church was the life of one who was redeemed by the grace of God and confess Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. This initial declaration was, was directed to Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. 
not on the rock that was, but on the rock that would become. It would eventually include other apostles and disciples. Paul refers to the church as God's household in his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Listen to verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So which one is the rock? Is it Peter or is it Jesus? Well, Paul tells us it's both. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But there is a foundation of the apostles and the prophets upon which the church is built. And you and I, who have been redeemed by Christ, who confess Jesus as Lord, are part of that holy temple that God is building. The church is built on disciples. The church is built on people like Peter, who are clay and sand, but Jesus turns into rocks and living stones. The church is global, it includes all nations, and it's local because we get to gather in a place like this. It is spiritual because it is the faith in Christ that, that allows us to join it, but it is also physical. We have a very physical sign of faith. It's called baptism. You get wet, very wet. It is, it is a way of saying that, that that which is invisible, that which is spiritual, is also a physical experience of the incarnate Christ, the body of Christ. The church is both divine and it is human. Just as important as it is to accept the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. He was God and he was man. So the body of Christ is divine because it was established by Jesus. And it's also human because it's made up of people like you and me. We are people made of clay, but God is making us into rocks, precious stones. God has chosen to build on us in perfect people. But one day he will make us perfect. The church is built on disciples like you and me. Number three, the church is bestowed with power. There are many who are concerned about the church and the state of Christianity. Some have suggested that Christianity needs a savior. It needs to be saved. But if you take the words of Jesus seriously here, you'll notice that the church doesn't need to be saved. It says that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Hades is the realm of the dead. The Jews understood that. It's the place where people who had been overcome by death would go. And Jesus is saying the church will not be overcome by the realm of the dead. The church is bound up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not till after the resurrection that the church is actually born. It is the power of the resurrection that causes a bunch of cowardly followers to come out of hiding and meet in a public place. It is the power of the resurrection that causes them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of the resurrection that allows the day of Pentecost to happen and the Holy Spirit to come down on the church and give it its birth so that it can proclaim the power of one who died and rose from the dead. Jesus knew that many of his disciples in the first century would die for their faith. 
Some would die at the Roman Colosseum. Some would be crucified. Tradition states that Peter was crucified upside down. And as Jesus is speaking these words, he wants them to know you might die for your faith, but the church is not going to be overcome by death. Leslie Newbigin, a contemporary missiologist, said, it is not the superiority of the church's preaching which disarmed the Roman imperial power, but the faithfulness of its martyrs. You know that the Roman Empire tried to squelch the church, tried to stop the church, and it couldn't stop the church. Not because they were the best preachers or because they were the most eloquent or because they had the best programs or the best buildings, but because they were willing to die for their faith. And the Roman Empire fell, but the church continues. For 2,000 years, kingdoms have risen and fallen, but the church of Jesus Christ continues to move forward. They have been leaders of movements. They have been philosophers that have spoken. They have been nations who have been prominent, nations who have lost their prominence, but the church continues to move forward. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Individual ministers may fall, and fell, it is sad, it breaks our hearts when leaders abuse their power, but it doesn't stop the church. God's church is not a victim. God's church is not the object of pity. God's church does not have to be saved. God's church is a force to be reckoned with. It advances against the powers of darkness. It advances the kingdom of the resurrected Christ. The church is bestowed with power. We can be confident in that. We don't have to fear those who want to destroy it, whether it's the Roman Empire or the secularist or the atheist or the immoral or whoever you are afraid of. Listen, instead of paranoia, let's be the church and let's work in its power. The Holy Spirit is with us. But same token, when church leaders abuse their powers, their power, and they hurt others, we should not be afraid to deal with it. When... When, when there are people who do wrong in the church, we should not be afraid to bring it out in the open, to confront it, to deal with it adequately. We don't do the church a favor when we try to hide and downplay the sins of leaders, the sins of, of people who bring a bad testimony to the church of Christ. The church is not fragile. It's not going to melt if you, if you confront the truth. It is the instrument of God to advance the kingdom. Don't be afraid. Be awed by the power of God. I, uh, I, I, I watched a little Disney movie with my grandson this week called Encanto. And I don't want to do a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but I, I, I just was, was interesting to see how this movie talks about uh, a familia who, um, who everybody has special gifts and, and it's all about the gifts that individuals get. But somewhere in the movie, there's this question about what, what matters more. Is it the individual gifts of familia members? Or is it the gift of each other and being a collective? And, and I want to tell you that when it comes to the church, the Holy Spirit has given every member gifts. But it's not the individual gifts that matter it's the gift of the Holy Spirit that matters most, that he makes us a collective familia, 
The power of the church is not found in the charisma of a few leaders, but in the collectiveness of its members and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then fourth and final, the church is binding for eternity. There are many jokes that feature St. Peter at the gates of heaven deciding who can come in and who will be left out. There, there's like millions of them. I, I remember one about Joe and Jerry, those senior adults who were really good friends and, and they love baseball. And they had wondered if there was going to be baseball in heaven. And so one day Jerry died and he got to uh, the gates of heaven and, and he asked St. Peter whether there was going to be baseball in heaven. And when he got his answer, he says, can you do me a favor? Can I just go back real quick and tell Joe he's going to want to know. And so he got permission and he went back and, and he went uh, to where Joe was. And Joe says, you know, as you know, I died and I went to heaven and I have good news and I have bad news. He said, well, what's the good news? There is baseball in heaven. He said, that's great. What's the bad news? He goes, you're pitching Thursday. <laughs> this concept of Peter being at the gates of heaven, letting people in or keeping people out is, is mistakenly based on verse 19. Listen to what it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When Jesus says this to Peter, he's not giving him the keys for the gate of heaven so that he could decide who to let in and who to keep out. He's giving them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That means he's giving them the authority <coughs> to do ministry on earth, <coughs> excuse me, in such a way that it will impact eternity. The apostles will teach the truth of the gospel in such a way that it would make a difference in eternity. They would proclaim the gospel in a way that it would allow more people to live eternally in heaven. They would make decisions like the decisions to let uncircumcised believers be part of the church that, that will enlarge the church. There are many businesses and institutions today that do a lot of good things and we're thankful for them. But few of them, if any, can say what the church can say, what we do here on earth impacts eternity. We have that unique privilege. Every time the church proclaims the gospel and someone comes to know Christ, it makes a difference in heaven. Every time the church makes a disciple, it makes a difference in eternity. Every time we mobilize people to, on mission to, to love people with words and deeds, it makes a difference in eternity. Every time we, we adopt a budget, every time we, we, we have ministry for children and for students, we impact eternity. Every time that we feed the hungry, every time that we minister to the immigrant, every time that we care for the widow, heaven is impacted by the ministry of the church. Sometimes the church opens up new avenues in heaven. Sometimes it closes them up. It makes a difference. It really matters what we do as a church. Why engage the church is the question today. Well, I would say from our text, because it belongs to Christ, because it's built on disciples, because it is bestowed with power resurrection power and because it is binding for eternity. Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for it. 
Paul writes about the marital relationship in Ephesians 5, and, and he tells husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and, blame, and blameless. Christ died for the church. He didn't die for individuals with a spiritual self-improvement program. He didn't die for individuals who could hear more podcasts or more sermons online. He died for the church. He died for his bride. He died for, for a community of believers that, that would be committed to him and to one another that would be on mission with him. The church was born when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And whatever happens in human history, the church will be here to receive Jesus when he comes back. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of the church. And my question to you is, will you commit to Christ's church? Will you be a part of this instrument of God for redemption? The church is not a place. The church is not an event. The church does not save you. But it is the instrument of God for redemption. Let's stand together. As you bow your head and you, you think about what God's word has said to you today, I want to invite you to, to reflect and to respond. Maybe your response today is to, to commit to Christ as the head of the church. The way that you become a part of his church is by placing your faith in him. You, you can't be born into it. Your parents can't decide for you. Your nationality, your ethnicity, your denomination cannot decide for you. It is a personal commitment. It is a confession like the one of Simon Peter that says you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Maybe that's the commitment you need to make today. For the first time in your life, you understand what it means and you can pray that prayer. You can do so right now, whether you're in person or online. Maybe you need to make a commitment to engage the church. You, you, you've been trying to do this spiritual walk on your own and you realize that the church is not just a place to go to every once in a while, but, but a, an incredible mystery to which to belong and to be a part of. And you say, I want to be committed. I want to love the church like Christ loves the church. I want to pray for it. I want to serve. I want to belong. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the ecclesia that he established, that he called out. Thank you for making us a part of that. We know that Calvary is an expression of that. And we, we know that we don't have it all together. We haven't arrived. We're not rocks yet. But we pray that you make us that that we would be a true expression of your ecclesia for your glory. 
As we sing, will you continue to respond whatever commitment God is calling you to make. Let's sing. Let's respond.